Welcome back, Faded Family, after a much-needed break. Thank you for allowing us the time and being patient with us as we took a much-needed break uh, through the Labor Day weekend and a little bit beyond that. We just needed some some breathing room, some downtime, which everybody needs every once in a while, right? Uh, we hope that amidst the pandemic and despite the pandemic, everybody is doing well, enjoying um, positivity, and finding some great time with family and friends. We are excited to be back for episode 17 this week. Uh, we've got a great guest, Alicia Portnoy-Woodruff, who takes us through her journey as um, a former athlete, somebody who is um, has found her passion in personal training. Um, has, she's got a great story to tell, um, very colorful story. Uh, we get into therapy quite a bit, um, and we talk about you know it being 2020 and like how do we change uh, the way that we approach some of this. Part of it is just this podcast and being able to speak openly about uh, the disease of, of addiction and, and substance use and um, and the stories that people are going through. Um, but hers is a great one, and I really appreciated her, her candor in – you know, the way she feels about how we have to move forward. Um, so she's got some great advice for um, those of you that are struggling, as well as those who are loved ones who are seeking um, some guidance and direction. Uh, and we really hope that you enjoy um, kind of the discussion back and forth that we had. So Alicia, thank you so much for joining again. As I mentioned at the end of the episode, I hope we can have you on again. Um, we appreciate you being open to sharing what you've been through. I think it's super brave and awesome and real. Um, that you had the courage and willingness to do it. And um, we encourage, you know, anybody else out there that has a story that is um, interested in telling it that this is an open forum for you. I am more than happy to have anybody on that wants to share. Uh, We hope that more of you come forward. um, And we encourage the rest of you to just keep moving forward, keep trying, keep pushing. Um, And thank you again for listening as always. Uh, Welcome episode 17. Welcome back. We had a quick break uh, over the much-needed Labor Day weekend. Uh, Thanks for the patience while we took uh, two weeks off, but we are back. We are so excited. Uh, And our new and latest guest, um, Alicia, thank you so much for joining us. We are so excited to get to know your story um, and very pumped to have somebody who has been on both sides of this disease um, to kick off our new and latest episode. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, Jackie, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, what I would love to know, because I don't know your story well either, um, is just a quick kind of preview into your past, um, kind of how you grew up and, and where you grew up and um, where you are today. Okay, sure. I grew up um, in Southern California, a suburb of Los Angeles, Northridge, California. A brother, mom, dad, a seemingly normal childhood. I Started, you know, I was pretty just active child, played a lot of sports, started playing tennis when I was seven years old, I got a tennis record for my birthday, and then that kind of took off, I um, had some, I guess, natural ability, I really loved it, so by the time I was nine years old, I was playing some local tournaments, and that was kind of like how I was known around the neighborhood, it's kind of the sporty girl, um, the tennis player, as I, you know, went on into middle school and high school, that was kind of my, um, my identity was, was the tennis player. Mm -hmm. I remember feeling 
you know, kind of just a little different. Like I never really fit in because my friends after school would, would hang out, you know, and do whatever they did. And I would be going to tennis practice. Yep. So I, I always felt like maybe, you know, I, I just didn't fit in. I had friends. I was never really like super close to them. I mean, just, I don't know. It just always felt a little different. So ended up playing tennis um, through high school, got a, a tennis scholarship to the University of North Carolina. That's how I ended up in North Carolina, in California. I think I was going on recruiting trips and I, it came down to San Diego State and the University of North Carolina, like two majorly different schools. And I chose UNC because it was the furthest away from my parents. I really <laughs> wanted to get away from them. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, it, it, my mom, I lived with my mom. My parents were divorced. I lived with my mom. My brother lived with my dad. And my mom and I had a uh, kind of a tumultuous relationship. I mean, it may have just been like normal teenage mother-daughter relationship I don't know but um, I definitely wanted to just get away I remember that so off I went I will say the first time I ever tried alcohol I was 11 years old at a tennis camp and like the older kids were passing around um, a tennis ball can full of beer and I was all over it I mean I, I just I was the type of kid I just wanted to fit in yeah um, I wanted people to like me I wanted people to think um, I knew what I was doing and I was cool I was like as far away from that as possible but I wanted you to think that right so already I was just you know that type of kid that just just please like me please let me fit in please let me be a part of and that carried on through childhood and high school and, and all that you know college um, yeah. just never really had a sense of self and so that's when I tried, that was my first drink of alcohol. And, and what do you remember I about it. that? I, I mean, what do you, re I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I've heard so many different accounts of the first, you know, the first sip or the first try of things. Like, what do you remember about it? Right. Um, I remember, I remember I liked doing something that I knew was wrong. Like my parents taught me right from wrong. I knew that they weren't big drinkers, but for whatever reason I knew like that was for when I was 21. Yeah. Um, and so I liked doing something that I knew I shouldn't be doing kind of like that rebellious attitude. Mm -hmm. I liked fitting in with the older kids. You know, I, 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 I didn't get drunk or anything like that. I, I think I just had a couple of sips. Of course I hated the taste of it, but um, I just, I just remember you know, I didn't have that feeling of ease and comfort. Like some people talk about that first drink. I, that wasn't my experience, but I did have the feeling of ease and comfort that I was fitting in. Right. And I like that. Interesting. So, you know, maybe from then on, I was chasing that. Right. Um, right. I think the first time I ever got actually drunk, drunk was probably in high school, you know, I don't know, 15 or something like that. We, uh, my friends and I used to drink a lot. Um, you know, at football games and stuff like that. And that I remember liking a lot. Was your account at 11 years old, was that just kind of like a one and done or like few and far between type situation? Yeah. Then? Yeah, yeah okay. for sure. Just a one and done. I would never really sought it out after that. Um, you know, maybe like that, you know, being at my grandma's like for Christmas dinner, I knew, I knew which punch bowl had alcohol in it. And I would take this of that yeah, without, yeah. you know, telling my parents. I mean, cause so I did, I don't know. I mean, I guess I did. I got something out of that maybe. And again, I think it was more just doing something that I wasn't supposed to be doing. 
because I don't ever remember getting like drunk off of it. But I do remember sneaking you know, the good punch bowl rather than, <laughs> you know, the kid punch bowl. So I love that. Um, the good punch bowl. Yeah. I feel like every kid has right. drank from the, the good punch bowl at one point. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but then in high school, things definitely like picked up in terms of, of drinking. I mean, I definitely sought it out. I looked forward to my weekends or whenever um, I could get together with my friends and and drank. And when I drank, I drank to get drunk for sure. I, I like that feeling. I couldn't wait to get there. And it was on. And it just, I, I just, you know, I was a kid who I just, I didn't really, I didn't know who I was. I, I mean, maybe just like a normal teenager, but I definitely had some feel, I just, I definitely had some feelings of depression. I don't know if I would necessarily call it that back then, but looking back now, um, for sure, had some depression, had some social anxiety. And the alcohol helped that. It helped me feel better, even though alcohol is a depressant and, you know, pouring a depressant on top of depression, not really all that smart. It helped yeah. me in the moment. Yeah. Um, feel like I belonged, feel better just about life in general. And, you know, I felt very stressed out as a kid. I did feel pressure to perform well in tennis. I, I had been told, like, I had to get a tennis scholarship if I wanted to go to college. My parents worked hard. They were you know, my mom was a teacher and my dad worked for LA County and did well, but you know, tennis is an expensive sport and um pretty sure they spent my college education savings on tournaments and coaching and all that stuff. So, yeah. you know, I knew I had to perform well and I, I knew if I wanted to go to college, which that was expected. I mean, that's just what you did in our family. You went to college after high school. Mm -hmm. um, then I needed to, to get that college scholarship. So the drinking really helped relieve, relieve that pressure. And, you know, even knowing I had tournaments the next day, um, I still, if I could go out up to a football game and get drunk, I would. I was going to say, um, did it affect your tennis? I mean, I, I can't imagine like yeah. you know, with the pressure of, of that, like d did it actually affect it or was it more, you're just kind of trying to sneak it where you could? <laughs> no, I mean, it, towards the, there were times it definitely did. I mean, I would, my parents trusted me enough to, I mean, this is back in the day where like you would just fly by yourself to a tournament and go with your friends and um, stay in a hotel with three other 16 year olds. I mean, this is like back in the eighties and like, that's just what you did. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, once I got there to these tournaments, I mean, if we could get alcohol, we would definitely drink the night before matches and stuff like that. It, for sure. It affected my play. I mean, I had some good results. I think I probably could have done better. Um, of course, like, I mean, some matches, you know, just hung over yeah. or even just not getting enough sleep. Um, yeah, it, it definitely affected me. And, um, and my, so I think a lot of, I mean, obviously, you know, you're, you're a listener of the podcast and we've got a pretty mm -hmm. diverse audience of people, some who have gone through this, some who have not, but do you remember at that time, I mean, what were, what's your recollection of what you knew at that time? Was this just, I'm in high school, I'm drinking, I'm having fun, I'm fitting in, I'm, you know, like those kinds of feelings, or did you have a sense that maybe there was an issue at all? So I definitely had a sense there was an issue. In fact, we had this speaker come talk to our high school about, I think that was back in the day of like, just say no, or, you know, something yeah. with Nancy Reagan, something like that. And like, you know, don't drink, don't do drugs. But I remember this guy, I remember it very clearly, like he was describing how I felt when I drank and kind of the warning signs. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, that's me. Mm. And I remember going up to 
I don't think it was him, but like one of his like assistants and, and kind of talking to them. And they're like, yes, we, we think you have a problem with alcohol and we're, um, we need to talk to your parents. And I'm like, put the brakes on right there. Like, yeah. cause there was no way my parents find out. I, I did not feel like that was going to go well. So that was the end of that. I didn't let it go any further, but I definitely knew I didn't, I just, I just didn't drink like my friends, I guess. Or maybe I just, it was the feelings inside yep. the feelings of just not being good enough and the alcohol filling a hole yep. that needed to be filled. And I would, um, I just, I just knew that something was different about me. I had that gut, gut level feeling and I have always been intuitive about myself. Problem is I just didn't trust it. Yeah. until recently after a lot of work and therapy and um, being sober have I learned to trust my gut yeah so. it's really interesting that's come up a couple times in our stories is just I felt different or I didn't feel like the people around me things like that and, and I don't I don't think that means you know that's the red flag to know what something's wrong but one of the things we've talked about is you know at that age or in school years you know rather than the just say no it's how can we potentially, you know, create an atmosphere education that, that helps us all be a bit more mindful and, and work through these, those things, because maybe it could help. I don't know, but it's interesting to, to hear you say that, um, and have heard that from other people as well, that, you know, internally it was just a bit of a battle or, or, or you were just, you just knew something was off and, um, or different than others. I, I find that to be really interesting to hear over and over again. Yeah, for sure. And, and also another big, big part, I think is, I didn't have my family and I, we just didn't communicate. I mean, you were just kind of always left to just sort of guess what was going on. You just sort of, just sort of figured it out. So I didn't feel like, um, you know, nothing was serious was ever talked about. You know, you, I just knew I shouldn't be drinking underage, you know, of course I knew not to do drugs. I mean, just, I needed to get good grades. I just, I just had, I just knew that, but we were, we never talked about things. Things weren't open in our family. And I think, you know, that is so important um, to just sit and talk with your kids and, you know, just ask them about their day and listen to help them open up. And, you know, just, I don't know. I think you could catch a lot of maybe warning signs that maybe weren't caught with me. Yeah. Um, Cause I was super depressed. And in my room a lot and going out a lot and staying out late and, you know, just nothing was ever really talked about. Just, you know, um, I kind of was just flying under the radar. Yeah. And um, did, did they know about your drinking? No, not that I know of. No, see, that's the thing. Like maybe they did. Maybe they they're did, not talking yeah. about it then and they're not talking about it now, but I don't think so. Yeah. Interesting. I, I really don't. I think, I think I had this, I just, my gut told me, you know, they didn't know because I would have been in trouble. Yeah, for sure. And for context, for your story, um, for the listeners, mm -hmm. did you have any experience or, or any real knowledge of addiction and alcoholism? I know that at this point you're, you know, you're not considering yourself that, but did you have any, you know, past or, you know, friends, family, neighbors, or any experience with that? No, like I mean, as a kid, I didn't, I didn't think anything of it um in terms of using the word alcoholic or anything like that I mean looking back now I can see family members who drank every day and you know maybe drank to excess every day 
but didn't really think much of it then. Right. So, yeah, it's just, it just, but yeah, looking back now, it's like, whoa. So that's another thing. Like, you know, I think if, if maybe my parents had talked to me about like, okay, well, you know, so-and-so, you know, we have, we have, we have some, um, whatever, um, alcoholic tendencies in our family, or I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, that, and this is not to like put blame on my parents. It's just looking back now, like what, maybe what they could have done, you know, but they can't do and they can't give what they didn't receive. So now after years of therapy, you know, they, they probably didn't have a lot of conversations with their parents and they right. were just bringing that into how they raised their kids. Yeah. We've talked a lot in, in our family about the same thing is just, you know, the, the generations and what's been shared and, and a huge part. And, and you and I talked briefly about this before, but the, a, a huge part of this, this breaking the stigma here is just talking about it. And that goes all the way down to the family level, right? We have to understand each other. We have to have those open conversations, even if it's very simple as how was your day <laughs> to get to know one another. And that should come from the family level and, and day to day. And as you're growing up and, and hopefully that will at least help a little bit more. Right. And so this podcast is right. meant for let's talk about it so that we can get down to it and just be better. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to come and tell, share my story, tell my story is I think there's so much stigma still behind alcoholism, drug addiction, that we just, you know, kind of cower in shame and try to sweep things under the rug and ignore red, red flags. And I think if we can just normalize it, things can get better Agreed. and people can get better. Absolutely. You know? And so, you know, I, I have, I, yeah, of course I, have less now, but still working through, yeah, of course, a ton of shame and I don't know, just guilt of what could have been or, or whatever. But you know what, if my story can help somebody, then it's worth it. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, absolutely. So. And so tell us how it progressed. I mean, you're in high school and you're drinking. So how does it go from there? Like, what's this, what is the story, you know? Yeah. So I ended up at uh, University of North Carolina, played tennis. My drinking in college, I would say, would be more like kind of your normal binge drinker or college student. Mm -hmm. I didn't drink every day. I was very serious about my grades, very um, serious about my tennis. And so when I did drink, it was definitely just a total blowout, like, you know, definitely to get drunk and, you know, blow off steam. I think, you know, I would classify it as a normal college student. So I did well um, academically. I did well with, with tennis. After I graduated, I moved back home, which I think was kind of a mistake because it wasn't really like my favorite place to be, but I didn't know what I was doing with my life. Like I had this degree and like, to me, I didn't really have any skills. (laughs) I just knew how to study and like, you know, that's it. So I moved back home. I eventually ended up getting a job as a personal trainer. I really enjoyed that and also got my first coaching job as a volunteer assistant at UCLA. And that's really where I, I kind of found my passion. I loved coaching. I love coaching, you know, these top level athletes. And so from there, I ended up getting my first paid assistant job back at University of North Carolina. Then I got my first head coaching job at the University of Texas, El Paso. And so I moved to El Paso. By this time, I was married. That marriage was, was kind of on the rocks. So um, I'm coaching. I'm doing well. I'm, you know, I'm living this life of like, 
like I have it all together, but my marriage isn't going that well. And I'm still feeling that like pull of I'm not good enough. Um, if people only knew, I didn't really know what I was doing, even though I have this head coaching job. I mean, somebody thought I knew what I was doing, but I just didn't, I just always felt like there were so many other coaches, like so much better than I was. And there were, I mean, I was a new coach, but I just felt like so out of place. So I would go home and just drink to relax, calm my anxiety. And so by this point, I'm getting divorced and I start seeing a therapist and we're talking and she's like, you know, I think you might need to go to an AA meeting. It sounds like, you know, your drinking is really causing you some harm. Hmm. Um, you know, and not just, you know, it's not really leading you down a path of where you want to be. Yep. And, you know, again, I hadn't had any consequences um, except for how I felt inside, dead inside, hopeless, depressed, full of shame because I didn't know what I did the night before, things like that. You know, did I yell at my husband? Did I, you know, I just, just a lot of that, like, kind of just self-loathing. So this therapist who I trusted suggested I go to an AA meeting. And again, being the person who wants you to like me and think I'm like, you know, the best therapy student, I, I'm pretty sure that's why I went to that AA meeting. Yeah. Because I wanted her to think I was a good pupil, you know, like, meanwhile, she probably really didn't care, but, you know. Oh, she I'm was sure she did. it. <laughs> No, but you know what I mean? Like she was yeah. just like, yeah, I think you should do this. And so, but for me, it was like, well, I better go because she wants me to go. So, I, I mean, and I, I knew, I mean, I knew deep down, like it was where I needed to be, but um, I just think it was one of those, like, I was also trying to not impress her, but I just wanted her to think I was doing a good job in therapy. And I did. And I mean, the first, I remember just walking in nervous, but because not knowing what to expect, but I, as soon as I, it was a women's meeting. And as soon as these women started sharing and opening up about their stories, I immediately knew I fit right in. Yeah. And, um, it, I just related to what they had to say, even if we, you know, were different in terms of our culture or jobs or whatever. Um, it was the, the stories they were sharing, the feelings they were sharing. I absolutely connected with them. And I think that's all I was looking for was connection. Yeah. Like that was something that I just missed out on because probably because I was, you know, drowning myself in alcohol, I didn't have the ability to connect with another human being, but that's really all I was craving. So this connection with these women, um, I felt it immediately and stopped drinking that day. That was in 2002, was my first meeting. Now my sobriety date's not till 2006, hmm. July 1st, 2006. So in 2002, I did go to my first AA meeting and jumped right in with both feet. I was going to a meeting every day. was feeling really, really good. Immediately just felt lighter on my feet. Like, just felt like a weight had been lifted off. Yeah. So probably got to be about three months in. And I met this, I met this person who she was also fairly new to sobriety not her first rodeo she had just gotten out of rehab but you know from there it just we just we never we were just always together um we were going to meetings and hanging out and I remember going out we went out to dinner one night and um she's like I'm gonna order a drink and I'm like yeah I am too like just without even a thought yeah you know like a second thought just ordered it and I gotta tell you like that that drink 
turn into just four years of complete hell. Like it, that one drink sent me spiraling to where within, I'd say two weeks from there, I was doing cocaine with her. And from there, probably two weeks later from that, we're, now we're using, now we're shooting up cocaine. I mean, it, it just yeah. went, it, I've, I, I hadn't really done drugs. Um, maybe smoke some weed or something like that, but nothing wow. compared to what we were doing. And it's just, that's what I want to share. Like it, the disease is so insidious, like it'll just creep up on you. And I, I mean, without even thinking, I'm like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And of course I hadn't done really all the inside work. I hadn't worked a step. I hadn't really done the inside work to be strong enough to be like, to really think this drink through or you know, I was still trying to fit in. I still wanted people to like me. I still wanted, you know, to fill a hole that hadn't been filled yet with positive things. And I was using, now I'm using drugs and alcohol to do that. The, the disease was ready and, for you. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, they always, like AA says, you know, well, while you're in a meeting, the disease is outside doing push-ups, getting stronger. Yeah. And so it, it definitely was. And, you know, I in those three months that I was staying sober and going to meetings, I didn't get a sponsor. I hadn't worked a step. So I was sober, but I wasn't doing the work that requires one to stay sober. And um, that was apparent as soon as she wanted to order a drink, I was right on top of it as well. And, you know, next thing you know, I'm now I'm doing drugs that I never thought I would do. And that, that's what happens. Like, you know, Addiction doesn't discriminate. Um, You know, I'm this head tennis coach at a major division one school. And now I'm living this dual life where I'm trying to do a job and be a coach and a mentor to these 20 year olds. And then also on the side, you know, I'm trying to um, take care of an addiction, take care of meaning, feed it and live that life too. And that didn't go very well. And within a year, less than a year, I'm being told I need to go to a rehab. And so I did, but I didn't take it very seriously. I went to an outpatient program. I wasn't ready to get, to get clean and sober. Um, I just did it to get them off my back and thought that I could manage everything. How did you get um, uh, caught, I guess, is if, if for lack of a better term, like how did they figure it out or do, could, was it just that obvious? You know, I think it was just that obvious. Yeah. Um, I don't remember specifics. Maybe some money was missing or you know, just that my behavior, Yeah. you know, just, yeah. just my behavior, not going, not, you know, being caught at home and not at work. It just, I think it was just a lot of red flags of something is not right. So, yeah, I'm um, always wearing long, you know, I'm wearing long, I would never wear short sleeves. My arms were a mess. Um, just always wearing long sleeves. I think it was just pretty apparent that I was not, not doing well. And uh, so I was given a chance. I was going to say the transition, you know, you've, you've had alcohol, you know, and you've been used to alcohol forever. I mean, you know, you, the moment you do that first drug, is it different? Do you, you just, or was it just, you're just not looking back. It just goes, it's natural and, and it's happening. Yeah. I mean, the minute that I tried cocaine and used, used it intravenously, it it was, it was over like that, that right there was 
I was, I was done. I was hooked. I wanted more. I would do anything to get more. And, you know, I turned into a person that I didn't even know I could be. And I was doing things that I didn't even think people did until I was doing them. You know what I like? I was living this life that you, you think only, I don't know. I mean, for me, like just, it just wasn't how I was brought up. So I'm doing things that, you know, I might have seen on TV or in the movies or something like that. I mean, it just was unbelievable, but it was my life. Yeah. Wow. And because I was willing to do whatever it took to get what I needed to stay high. Yep. And so that job was done. You know, I eventually got fired from there. Luckily, I was able to get another tennis coaching job at Gonzaga University. So I moved up to Spokane, Washington, and I'd say within, I don't know, two months, I was right back doing the same thing. And I didn't last long there either. You know, again, just obvious red flags, behavior. You know, there's a lot of shame there because I was supposed to be you know, a mentor to these kids. And I think I could have really done a good job with them. And I did the best I could with what I had. Right. But you can't do a very good job when you are, you know, operating a double life, you know, getting very little sleep. And just, it was just a mess. So I, um, yeah, so after I was fired from that job, I drove out to Raleigh, North Carolina. I had a friend here and tried to stay sober again. That was in 2004. Uh, probably stay sober another three months. That was kind of my thing, stay sober three months. That's yeah. probably the longest I could get. By this time, um, my veins were shot. So I was, now I was smoking a lot of crack and that probably lasted in and out, in and out, like in and out of the rooms for another year. Cause in, yeah, probably a year and a half. I was able to get a job as a personal trainer. So again, like living that double life, yep. um, you know, professing health and fitness, you know, training my clients and then going home and getting high. Yeah. So um, that was, that was tough. Tough to reconcile in my own mind and in my gut. And uh, it's just a lot of shame wrapped around that. Just being as a person that I didn't want to be, but not really wanting to stop either. I knew how to stop. Of course, I'd been to AA. It was all around. I mean, Google exists. You can, you know, I can find meetings. Um, I was just stuck in a, in a terrible cycle of, okay, this is, you know, this is it. I'm going to stay clean today and, you know, come two o'clock or whatever. I would start feeling better. And then the cycle begins and I get high again. And now I feel shame and remorse. And, you know, it's, it's the cycle that is talked about a lot in addiction. Um, you just go back back around around and around and around you go so a big a big thing that happened in 2005 I started um I was still working as a trainer in 2005 I started like having some like vertigo and my left side of my face went numb and I just thought it was from doing drugs it was getting so bad that um I went to I ended up driving myself to the hospital and they admitted me and I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Yeah. And I was like, wow. Um, Cause all I knew about MS was that people ended up in wheelchairs. Yeah. So right. super, super scared. Um, and my neurologist looked at me and he's like, you know, I'm not really scared about, I, I think you're going to be okay with the MS. Like we're going to get through that. But 
it's your crack addiction that we've got to work on. Cause wow. I was honest with them and told yep. them what I was doing. And that you would think that would scare me enough. And I, if I probably spent another year, you know, in and out of the rooms and trying to, you know, some clean time, but not much. And, uh, it was just, you know, just more and more just feeling just so low, like, what am I doing? You know, starting to feel suicidal. I, mean, I felt suicidal for a, a long time. Yeah. Um, just the self-loathing, the shame, the what have I done with like, my life type feelings. You know, I'll never, I'll never, that was always a big thing for me. Like, I'm never going to like fix my credit. I'm never going to mm-hmm. be a normal person. Like, what is the use? Like, I might as well just keep doing this until like, I'm dead. What, what was the support system like around you, if anything? Were there people around you that were that mm-hmm. knew about this or that you were confiding in? No, nobody knew about what I was doing. I mean, except for, I mean, I, I was in and out of the Raleigh Triangle area AA room. So, I mean, if people didn't see me, I'm sure they knew I was using. Um, but I never really, like, confided or talked about it. I mean, it was just such a shame-filled experience when you're using and you've been in the rooms, even though like I've always was welcomed back with open arms. Like, oh my gosh, Alicia, we're so glad to see you. Welcome back. Try again. Here's a white chip. You can do it. You know, I was never looked down on. So I, for people out there who are dealing with relapse and relapse doesn't have to be part of someone's story. It's just part of mine and it you know, can be part of others, but you're always welcome back. You just got to take that step in and it's, yeah, tail between my legs, like such shame, but I was always lifted up, you know, so support system was, you know, yeah, it was living with my partner and she was very supportive, but I was hiding it from her um, because I didn't want to deal with the consequences. You know, it's, I mean, alcoholism and drug addiction are very secretive, which is another reason why I'm trying to put my story out there, you know, like AA. Alcoholics Anonymous, Anonymous, like it's kind of secretive. And I want people to know like it's out there. And in order to break the stigma behind addiction, like I think we need to talk about it. Yeah. Um, And I think we need to say like, hey, like these rooms are here for us. And um, they're full of people who can share their, they say their experience, strength, and hope. And, you know, I stay sober by helping another alcoholic or another addict. So this is part of me staying sober is sharing my story. Yeah. And we really appreciate you sharing it. And I, and I agree with you. It's, it's interesting as I'm learning more and, and, you know, I mean, this podcast is fairly new. I, I am not somebody that's struggled, but I have struggled as a family member. Um, Chris, who everyone knows by now on this podcast um, has a really strong story to tell as well. And, and the one thing is, you know, as you're learning, I think we all grow up, especially if you haven't gone through it and you don't know AA and you don't know some of the resources, you, you kind of automatically assume there's an eeriness or like a, like a creepiness or a cult like feel to it. And it's, it's, it's really not. Um, and as you've expressed, even in just the first part of your story, like you being welcomed with open arms and really finding that first moment of connection. And like, there's so much good. And I don't think that that is the immediate perception, especially from the folks that don't know anything about it. But, um, even, you know, maybe people that are listening that might be new to this or, or considering, you know, potentially trying it out. Like it is not scary and it's not bad. <laughs> and I think it's important right. to say that out loud. <laughs> right. But I think it, what is scary is doing something different. Yep. And so even though I knew I was in this horrendous cycle and I was probably going to end up dead if I didn't stop, yeah. at least it was comfortable to me. 
Right. So walking into an AA room that, you know, was so foreign and scary and, you know, I, nobody wants to be uncomfortable. Um, and it, sometimes it's hard to drop that crutch that feels comfortable, even though we know it's killing us. But once I walked into the rooms, I, I knew that was going to always be a safe place to go. And, you know, for me, like AA is how I've gotten sober. And like now in 2020, there's so many other, like there's other programs and I haven't used them, but I know people have had a lot of success with them. There's other things out there besides AA. We're back in, you know, thirties when AA was developed, that was it. Like you were there were these low, low bottom drunks. I mean, you have lost everything. You are, you know, a wet drunk. You're either ending up in a mental institution or, you know, you get sober. Like that's it. You have to go to AA and it's a secret society. It was thought of as secret back then because the, you know, if, if anybody knew like the, the stigma behind that was just going to kill your career and, you know, mm-hmm. but now I think 2020, like, it's just not like that anymore. Every single person, I I can't think of anybody who doesn't know somebody affected by alcoholism or drug addiction. Agreed. And so, you know, there's, there's so many resources out there now. There's resources out there that people can go to and it's as easy as a Google lookup, right? Like search it. Start somewhere, right? (laughs) Yeah. And there's tons of meetings. And and even now, like meetings, I think meetings have started meeting in person, but the meetings are on Zoom. So if you want to remain, remain anonymous, like turn your video off and just listen to it. Yep. So it's just, you know, from your own home, you don't even have to get in your car and go to the meeting, but get your butt to a meeting. I mean, family members, like, you know, sometimes it's just taking that first step again, like doing something uncomfortable. Like when you're living with the alcoholic or the addict, it's like so uncomfortable to stop enabling and to start doing something different, but you have to, or you're just feeding, you're feeding the addict. Yep. Like the addict's going to, going to do something different. Like I finally did something different. And, and I think that 2000, that July 1st, 2006, that's my sobriety date. I was running out of options. Nobody was sending me money anymore. I was going to get fired. That was going to come up really soon, but mm-hmm. I knew it. I was going to lose my relationship. They had enough stuff on the line that I had to do something different. If I didn't have that stuff on the line, why would I stop? Like, there's no reason. Right. And so when parents and, you know, loved ones are like, oh, I don't know, I got to help them, you know, like, you're not helping them by continuing to feed the addiction, you right. know, and to continue enable, you know, and so when we say like, oh, well, help yourself, self-care, I mean, what are those specific examples? I mean, go to a meeting, go to therapy, you know, read up on codependent no more and all, you know, books like that. Um, there's tons of Facebook pages. Um, that are just amazing resources. Like, oh, uh, there's this lady, I think her name is Lorelai Rosano or something like yeah, that. She's from yeah, Canada. She's she has amazing Al Anon stuff. I mean, amazing. Like, the more that you can read of that stuff, it's going to give you the strength to do something different. So the family has to do their work too. This is a family disease. So I can do all the steps I want and stay sober. But if the family's not doing their part, I feel like there's something missing. Absolutely. You know, where the, that connection is, is, is missing. So I, I have a question for you. So to, to try and give some perspective to, to family members who, who are listening from your perspective, you know, as the addict, you know, in the time that, that you were struggling, 
if you could tell them how to help you, if you could go back and say like, here's mm -hmm. what I actually need from right. you to help me. Like what that, I don't think yeah. you've ever put that question so simply here is like, if you could look them in the eye now that you know what you know, and now that you you've recovered, like, what would you say? Mm -hmm. Well, I remember telling my mom, she was like, I don't know, on me about something. And I was deep into my addiction. And I said, mom, you have got to go to an Al-Anon meeting. Yeah. You have to, you're not going to get what I'm doing. And you're not going to be able to like help yourself. You have, I told her, please go to an Al-Anon meeting. That's the only way you're going to be able to help me a and stay with it. Like they, I think Al-Anon says like, go to, you know, try six meetings in a row yep. and, and, and see what, see how that works for you. Get a sponsor, work the steps. I mean, the steps are going to really help. I mean, not, I mean, for me as an addict, help me like really look at my inside stuff, take my inventory look at the real causes and conditions of why I was using. And it came down to just complete self-centered fear. Um, you know, like I've said in the beginning, like just fear of people not liking me and fear of not being good enough and all that crap. But, you know, same thing with the enablers. They have to do that too. Cause there's a reason that they're not stopping helping the addict. And it's not just because, well, I love them. It's my daughter. It's my son. It's more than that. Like once you see that the person is just going down this rabbit hole of addiction, why do you keep doing that? Why do you keep giving them money? Right? Like why, you know, so that you got to get down to the bottom of that. And, and Al-Anon is such a, an amazing resource. Yep. And there's so many, I mean, I know this podcast goes out to all over the place. So if you don't have local meetings, then find one online because yep. they're there. And we've got those resources um, on our website as well. So if anybody's listening and yeah. doesn't hear where to go, just fadedpodcast.com. We have as many resources as you need um, or reach out and we can yep. help you find something. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. But that's the deal. You have to be willing to do the work and it's scary. I mean, you're doing something different that doesn't, and it goes against like everything I think in our being of like mm -hmm. wanting to help another person where it's like, seems like you're doing the opposite, but there is, I mean, that's my experience. There is, was no reason for me to stop. I mean, you could, you could tell me, you know, you're ruining your life. You're screwing up the family that whatever, like it, it just didn't matter. Like there had to be major consequences for me. Yeah. And I think, and, and I think like there's so many different kinds of bottoms now. I think, you know, it doesn't, you don't need to hit as low of a bottom as I did. You don't need to like be fired from jobs and you know, thank God I never got any DUIs. You don't need DUIs and ending up in jail and all that to get sober. Like I know plenty of high bottom drunks. That's what they're called when it's just, you know, you just, you, you haven't lost anything, but it's that like feeling of like misery and just hatred of how you're feeling and depression. And just, you just feel like crap and you know, you need to stop drinking. Yeah. Or maybe you think like, maybe the drink, maybe I don't need to be drinking every night. You know, it can be as high as that. I mean, I just think to get right. help, right? Like get help before it gets that bad, right? Right. Um, unfortunately for me, I'm super stubborn and took a really long time. But fortunately, I'm super stubborn and like I, I will do everything I can to stay sober today. Right. Because I don't want to mess it up. Absolutely. You know, and I like the life and I like the life that I have now, right? I can't imagine like going back to how I was living. That's I, I cannot imagine that. 
And what, what did you, Um, like, what did you come across? So you, you, you basically lost resources and you kind of got fed up and then what, what was different? Like when you finally kind of, when it clicked for you, I guess that might be a cheesy way to say it, but Mm -hmm. what, what changed, I guess, get into the path of, of actual recovery? Yeah, honestly, like I had tried to get sober so many times and failed and, you know, in and out and just, oh my God. I really think the difference was on July 1st, 2006, I looked in the mirror and I rarely looked in the mirror at that time. I could not stand what I saw, but I decided at that point I was going to put every ounce of effort into my sobriety as I did into getting high Hmm. because the amount of effort that I put into getting high every day, because I needed a certain amount of money to put me where I wanted to be every day. That was some significant work that I put in. (laughs) I mean, I remember carrying one of those like window units down to the pawn shop. Now that thing is heavy, but I am walking down the block with a window unit in my arms to a pawn shop in Spokane, Washington. (laughs) I mean, that is the type of effort that I put in so that I could get 40 bucks, you know, and it wasn't even my window unit. So now I'm stealing somebody's window (laughs) unit. And of course, always told myself, because I'm, you know, I'm not a thief. I was going to get it back, but I was borrowing it. Right. To get my money so that I could go get drugs. That wow. type of effort that I put in, um, I was going to put into my sobriety. And yeah. I just decided on that day I was going to do that. You know, and I have that like kind of athletic mindset and um, yeah. that's just sort of my personality. And for whatever reason that day, it clicked. Yeah, it clicked. And I mean, you can call it, you know, spiritual awakening or, you know, divine intervention or whatever. It was just time. I was tired. I hadn't even gotten caught. Uh, you know, it wasn't one of those. I was just tired of living the way I was living. Yeah, I really was. It was exhausting. For sure. Um, you know, what was that? 14 years ago, a little over 14 years ago. Um, so I was, let's see, I'm 48 now. So I was 34 years old. I mean, I was exhausted. I, I was just sick of living that way. Um, I'd had enough. Yeah. And, and, um, and tell us about your, tell us about your recovery journey from there. It's 14 years is a long yeah, time. So from, awesome. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I mean, I can't believe it even, you know, even to this day, it just seems really unbelievable. But, you know, from there, I just, again, jumped in with both feet. I got a sponsor right away. I started working the steps. I immediately started doing service work because you don't have to like work all 12 steps to start helping someone else. Now I'm not, I wasn't helping someone work through their steps. I wasn't a sponsor, yeah. but I started setting up meetings. I started staying after and cleaning up after meetings, um, you know, greeting people at meetings. Um, then probably after, I don't know, a year or so, um, working and working through the steps, I started volunteering at the women's prison and go and taking a meeting there every Tuesday. I started going into, um, they're called H and I meetings like hospitals and institutions and, and telling my story there. So I was very involved. Um, through sponsorship and taking meetings, you know, um, to prison and rehab and, um, you know, just being part of the solution and being a part of and giving back because people gave to me so many times, welcomed me back, um, you know, open arms. And so I started doing that for other people. That's great. And, you know, little by little, I mean, it's just, honestly, it is one day at a time. Um, you know, I've got to stay, I got to stay on it. 
and yeah, I mean, now like 14 years in, absolutely. Like I am not, I don't go, I used to go to a meeting every day. Now I go to like two meetings a week, which for me works. Um, I talk to my sponsor several times a week. I talk to other alcoholics a couple times a week. You know, I stay involved yep. uh, so that I can remember who and what I am. And that's an alcoholic and an addict. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Doing push-ups in the, in the parking lot right now. Um, you know, if I pick up a drink or I think it's like a good idea to go smoke crack or something, which I would hope it isn't. I don't think that, but I would be off to the races. There's no doubt in my mind um, that I, I cannot drink like a normal person. I don't want to. I don't want to drink like a normal person. I want to get completely, you know, blasted. And once I do that, then I want to go, you know, find drugs. Yeah. That's my pattern. And I don't see any reason why that would be different even 14 years later. Yeah. I don't think that part of my personality has changed. AA was instrumental in helping me with my alcoholism and addiction, drug addiction. Going to therapy has helped me with all the other stuff. Mm -hmm. So I've probably been in therapy well over 10 years. I mean, since I moved, well, I'd say 15 years since I've moved here. So that has been instrumental in helping me deal with all the other underlying crap. Uh, You know, turning the dial down. Like if my anxiety was at a 10, therapy has helped me turn it down to a five. It's never going to be a zero, but I get to turn the dial down. And giving me skills to live life on life's terms. Living life on life's terms is a huge AA slogan. But, you know, instead of like just flying off the handle because something doesn't go right during the day and reaching for a drink, now I have, you know, skills to be like, okay, like that'll happen. Get pissed off for a couple seconds, turn the dial down, take some deep breaths, ask how important is it anyway. Usually that helps me like just level myself out you know but that it's just taken it has taken a lot of work a lot of soul searching a lot of inside work um and luckily you know I'm in a privileged position to be able to go to therapy once a week or whatever I need for where I you know and being able to go to a meeting when I want you know I think it's important to recognize that that not everybody can afford therapy and not everybody you know, some people might be working three jobs. Like, how, how am I going to get to a meeting? I mean, luckily there are meetings online now, but yeah. I need to remember, like, my job and my life are very privileged. Yeah. For so, sure. um, have, have you, so my question, and, and you actually led right into it, was have you, do you feel like you are you and a comfortable you now after going through all of that? Because I know you mentioned, you know, not, not feeling, the same as others feeling different and, you know, craving connection and all that. Like, do you feel like you've gotten through that? Do you feel like you are the you that you've always wanted to be now? Hmm. I think I'm still on that journey. I think I'm better than I was for sure. Yep. Um, I think I still strive and crave connection. I think as human beings, that's what we, that's what we want. But sometimes I'm so scared of the vulnerability that requires that's required in a true human, human connection that all back off. And so, but I'm getting better. I'm sharing a lot on this podcast. Um, I think that that's, you know, a big step. I may not have done that 10 years ago. Yeah. So, you know, am I the person that I've always wanted to be? I don't even know what I've wanted to be. (laughs) I don't know. Um, I think I'm all, I think, I think I'm always going to be on sort of this soul searching journey. 
and just kind of, you know, more will be revealed type thing. Yeah. Um, sure. Yes. You know, I've got to stay sober to do that because as soon as I put it, um, alcohol or drugs in my body, like it's off, like right. I completely shut off connection. I completely shut myself off from others. And then it's just me and my own selfishness, just, you know, sitting in the closet, you know, with drugs. Yeah. You know, that's, that's me. Yeah. I was never like a big social user. I always wanted to be by myself. Hmm. What is your life like now? Like, what do you do daily? Like kind of what's your routine like and what kind of keeps you driven? My, um, so I have my own personal training business. It's small, um, but it works for me. And I have an amazing clientele um, who's been with me for a really long time. And um, so I work with them and probably about seven years ago, I used to be a runner. I was running a lot and my body was kind of starting to fall apart. And so somebody suggested I try swimming and biking and long story short, that led me into triathlons. And so that is a lot of my day is training for triathlons. So a normal day for me is just, you know, get up, work, train, train clients, train myself, train more clients, maybe talk to my sponsor. <laughs> You know, that's about it. It's not really, I mean, especially now in the pandemic, I mean, what, well, there's really not much else to do, right? Yeah. But, um, but yeah, triathlon for me has really been a great outlet so that I can push myself, like push my body, test myself. I, I, you know, I don't get high off of it, but it is, I am kind of addicted to the feeling of um, accomplishment or I'm not sure I can do this. And then I do it and, you know, I, I get a real sense of satisfaction from that. That's great. So that's, that's definitely a big, big part of my life now. Um, I'm in an amazing relationship, which I never would have had if I didn't get sober. There's yeah. no way. Cause we yeah. would not, there's, there just would have, it would have just been, it's just such a, it's just a wholehearted connected relationship. Something that I just, I think I was always craving from very young. I just never felt like I had it. And now I do. Love yeah. that. That's awesome. Yeah. I guess, so I, that's, makes me so happy to hear all this and, and hearing your story is just so great. Um, and it's been eye-opening for me too. What you, you've heard the podcast, you've heard kind of what we've talked about. I would love to know your advice, um, not only for, you know, and, and we've given a lot of advice already today, but um, your advice for somebody that might be struggling today and then also advice for any family members, friends, loved ones that are listening, just based on your experience. I mean, anything you'd like to share just based on what you've gone through. Okay. So, um, I mean, for an alcoholic or an addict, or maybe they think they have, I have a problem with drugs or alcohol. Um, I would say go to a meeting. Um, just try it, see what happens, see what you think. And then when, when you're in the meeting, try to relate to the feelings. Try to relate to what's being said. Don't worry about what the person looks like or what you do as a job or what they do, but try to relate as best you can to the, like, just to how the feelings that are described. Same, same thing with Al-Anon. Um, you know, maybe um, the parent might have, you know, this, their child is struggling with alcohol and this person's talking about drugs. Well, just substitute alcohol for the drugs and, and just try to relate and see, and see what happens. That's, that's really what I would say for either one addict or family member, get to a meeting and whatever meeting, 
you know, support groups for alcoholics or support groups for addicts. They're all out there. And there's, you know, there's Zoom links. They, I just, I just think that that support system is so strong. And, um, you know, we're not supposed to, you know, AA has an 11th position. We're not supposed to talk about, um, we're supposed to keep our, supposed to keep our personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and film. Well, I don't have any personal ambition for this stuff. I'm just sharing my experience and I think it needs to get out there. I remember watching a Carolina Hurricanes game like a few weeks ago and there was an AA commercial. I was so shocked. I'd never I've seen, seen an that. AA commercial. Yeah. Did I remember see that. I was like, yeah. Wow. I remember saying, oh my gosh. I've never I seen that. So. Thing. <laughs> exactly. No, I, I hadn't seen that, but I thought it was great. And I think we need to talk about it more. So I think if you're struggling, reach out to the resources that are on your website you know, reach out to you or me or any, you know, somebody who, you know, you know, might be um, in recovery or just go to a meeting, just, yeah. just get there. And there will be tons of people that will, what they, we, their newcomers are so welcomed, you know, no judgment. And it's, they're just amazing places to start and be. I love it. So those, that's, yeah, that's the, that's the advice I would, and also for the addict, like, to just don't give up. Like, I relapsed so many times. I mean, and I'm lucky I made it to the other side. I mean, I could have died many times, but keep trying, keep reaching out. You know, the seed was planted in my head, even with that rehab that I was forced to go to, that I didn't even want to get sober, but it was still planted. You know, whatever I learned was still, it's still in there. So even if it didn't stick that time, I think that it, you know, it just, it eventually added up to where I am today. Yeah. So, sure. and same, same with, with a loved one. I mean, you know, you, you got to take care of yourself first. And I always take, that's kind of like a buzzword, like take care of yourself. Yeah. What does that even mean? Cause when people are like so deep in like, what do I do? And like this like panic and like almost paralyzed by fear, like, what does take care of yourself mean? It means like, go to a meeting. If you can't do that, like take a shower, make sure you're eating something, make sure you're, you know, reading, you know, codependent, no more type books, mm -hmm. things like that. Like fill yourself up with education. Yeah. About getting lost about, in your head. about addiction. What's that? I said, versus getting lost in your head about what if. Yeah, totally. You know. Oh, totally. You can just sit there into in the what if, and that does nothing. Like, right. The addict is just be out there doing their thing. Right. So, don't be afraid to do something different, even yeah. if it's so uncomfortable and you feel like you're just you're just gonna lose it. You got to be able to. You got to break the cycle. Somebody has to break the cycle. The parents and the, and the family members can play such a huge role in that, but you got to be willing to do it and. It, it takes a lot of courage and you got to be brave and you just, you just got to do it. Absolutely. What, um, what do you think we can all do regardless of who we are, um, to this disease or in these scenarios? I mean, what do you think we can, it's 2020, we've talked about, you know, being a bit more open about AA and similar things, but what else can we do to be better? Do you think? I, and, and I know I'm kind of just throwing that out there on the spot, but I'm curious, you mm -hmm. know, this is something that you've lived through, you've seen both sides and it's just like, what, what else can we do? I mean, look at our culture, right? Yeah. Everybody drinks. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think, you know, 
you can't even go to a yoga class without like, well, we're having drinks afterwards. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's so I true. Think we need, maybe we need to take a look at that. Like, we're, are we so stressed out that we can't even do a yoga class without a mimosa afterwards? Like, <laughs> I think we need to look at that. And I'm not saying like, you know what, if you can drink and have one drink and that's great and you enjoy it, go for it. Like, I am not like somebody who like, was going to shame somebody for having a drink after a yoga class. I just think it's interesting that that's how we sell things now, right? Like, oh, let's have our run club at a brewery. Right. <laughs> right. Like, I don't know. Like our, our culture is so enmeshed in almost like numbing out ourselves. For and sure. I think we need to get back to like real, like real human connection. And that's probably a whole nother podcast. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I think everybody needs to be in therapy. I yeah. heard Brene Brown say, um, there's two camps of people, those who struggle and get help and those who struggle and don't get help. Yeah. We all struggle. Yes. I mean, it's 2020. There's tons of stressors. My God, we're in the middle of a pandemic, right? We're in this crazy political time. If you can afford it, go get some help. Like, how can you stop like generational trauma or how can you stop the non-communication if you don't learn something different right right if you're just going to take from your grandparents to your parents to yourself pass it on to your kids you're keeping the cycle going so for me therapy has been a game changer along with with going to aa yeah and you're right everybody um, goes through stuff (laughs) yeah i mean everybody and so if we can just stop the shame and the stigma behind mental illness, behind like saying like, you know, we never, we don't, we don't um, hesitate to say like, oh, I got a doctor's appointment today, but we won't tell anybody we got a therapy appointment. Right. Right. They'll be like, what are you doing? Oh um, I got, I have, I'm going somewhere. I got an appointment. I'll be back. You know, like you're just kind of mumble your way through it. Like <laughs> it should just be like every day. Like I'm going to the dentist. Oh, I'm going to my therapist. Right. It's no big deal. So if we can start talking about mental illness and mental health, just as we talk about physical health, I think things could be a lot better. Completely agree. It's just like exercising your body. We've got to, we've got to work on the brain as well. And, and you know, what's inside. Totally. So I'm, I'm fully on board with that and completely agree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's scary because it's something different. We don't want people to think we're weak or, you know, all these like buzzwords, like where did that come from? Like, right. We need to just normalize it. Right. Yes. Like it's just, and unfortunately, like not everybody can afford, you know, to see a therapist and, and hopefully we can get to the point where it's just seen as a wellness check that's, you yep. know, free. Yep. You can just, you go to a therapist and, you know, you don't have to pay as you can or whatever. Um, but I just think it's so important. And sure, there's, you know, I've heard a lot of times like, oh, I didn't like therapy. That was terrible. Well, yeah, like, of course, there's in every profession, there's going to be people that you just don't mesh with go find somebody else like that's just such a cop-out you know there's really good therapists out there there's really crappy ones too right like you just you gotta just keep trying yeah absolutely so like any profession if you've had a bad doctor you're not going to just stop going to the doctor I hope you would just go find another one so same deal somebody tells you like oh I have cancer and all of a sudden we're delivering meals and everybody's you know driving them to their appointments and I'm like god what can we do we're gonna have a GoFundMe God forbid somebody says they're struggling with, you know, anxiety or depression or schizophrenia or whatever. And we're like, you know, shh, don't say anything. Like she's uh, like, you know, you know, you're like right. real quiet and like kind of, you know, oh, you look at them a little weird. Like, are you okay? You know, like so nobody, you're not, to the, yeah, you're not like, we've, we've got to change that. 
we've got to change that. And I think once we change that, maybe we'll stop numbing ourselves to drugs and alcohol and really start connecting as human beings and getting back to just, um, I don't know, just like being our authentic selves. Yeah, I think everybody's just got to slow down a little too. You know, I, what's interesting to me during this time, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I travel all over the place normally, you know, in pre-COVID um, and I'm, and I'm go, go, go. And I've always been very like, a, like a grinder and I'm like at full speed and I never even realized it until the, the, the pandemic hit, honestly. And it's like, wow, we need to slow down. And I think a big part of that is slowing down and also just dedicating some time to yourself every day, five minutes, whatever it might be. I do think that ideally it's, you know, it's therapy. It's, it's really spending the time to focus, but not a lot of people do that. Not a lot of people put the effort behind themselves. It's always, what's my next, ta next task? We're, we're expected to be so quick and go, and I need it now. And especially with technology and all that, it's just very, very difficult to slow down and stop for a second. Right. And just say, how am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> No, totally. I totally agree. And that's why I try to talk with my, my clients about just take five minutes and, and do some stretching five minutes. Like you right. have five minutes. I know you do. Like I'll come over to your house and I'll show you where you have five minutes <laughs> instead of like checking off to do, you know, instead of checking off the to-do list, because it's like we're being graded and, and, um, on how much we can get done in the day. You know, we have this like sense yeah. of, that's how a lot of us, I think, get our sense of self. Well, just how busy, you know, we focus on busyness rather than just being. Right. Right. And being okay with not fulfilling the to-do list. Yes. So sure. just, yeah, totally agree. Like slowing down. Like this pandemic, I think, has been, I mean, of course, it's horrible. Yeah. People are dying. Yeah. People are losing their jobs. But a positive that has come out of it has been, I think, like kind of the slowing down not racing off, you know, everywhere you want to go um, with every free minute that you have. Yep. You know, you're having to slow down, spend time with yourself, spend time with your, you know, if you're living with someone with a loved one, just, I think we all just need to stop and take a deep breath. Amen. To <laughs> you <that>. know, <laughs> instead of filling that hole with alcohol and drugs, like just take a deep breath, fill it with just oxygen. Yes. <laughs> right. What a concept, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Yeah. It, it is so simple. It yeah. is so simple, but I was just, I found myself trying to fill that emptiness inside of me with drugs and alcohol and wanting to be, I don't know, probably just someone that I wasn't. Yeah. And yeah. um, yeah, slowing well, down has been a, a big part. For sure. And I, I definitely, I appreciate your time so much today. And I would love to know um, before we close out here, um, first of all, I hope that you can come back on as often as you'd like. We'd love to hear from you. But what, what kind of parting thoughts do you have for, for the folks listening? This has been an awesome discussion. Loved hearing your story. Um, what else do you have to share um, just in closing? I mean, I would just say in closing, I think as if you're in recovery, I think think about talking out more. Let's break the stigma. Um, if you're not in recovery, but you're thinking you might need to be, take that first step and go to a meeting, um, wherever you are. And if that has to be online, it has to be online, uh, especially now. Um, and if you are a family member or loved one of somebody who you think has a problem, trust your gut. They most likely have a problem. Like a lot of times, like I think we can just blow it off. No, I'm just being, you know, overdramatic. No, talk to your kids 
I think be as open as you can with what you're comfortable with, you know, depending on the age and trust your gut and start educating yourself on red flags, signs. And if your gut tells you something's off, it's off. Yeah. Go with that. You know, better to be wrong, you know, and be like, well, okay, I, I misjudged that than to not trust your gut and let the, the addict just keep going and going and get further and further down the hole. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for the time. Um, again, hope to have you back soon. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And I really appreciate you telling your story. I think the more we can do this and I appreciate you encouraging others to, to kind of call, call up and, and share their story as well. I think it's the most important thing and one of the best things we can do. So thank you so much. Absolutely. I think just the more we all can share and the more we can put it out there in the public, I, I think uh, the more we can help others realize that we don't have to like suffer in shame. For sure. For sure. So let's, let's keep it going. <laughs> yeah. Thanks Jackie. Thank you for having this podcast. I think um, it's needed and yeah, let's just keep it going. For sure. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. You're the best. Take care. Bye.